You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Monastic rules are more than just rules. They are ordered ways of living, weaving the mundane and the heavenly, making worship their work and work their worship. None has been more widely and enduringly influential than the rule of St. Benedict of Nursia. And yet, Benedict's rule wasn't translated from Latin into another language for over four centuries. That first translator was St. Athelwold, Bishop of Winchester. His rendering of Benedict's rule into the vernacular, Old English, gives us a window into the 10th century English Benedictine reform and the pastoral heart of one of its great architects. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and today I have the pleasure of conversation with Dr. Jacob Ryaf, visiting assistant professor of English at Marquette University and translator of St. Athelwold's Old English Rule of St. Benedict, published by a liturgical press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Ryaf. Thank you very much for having me. Well, before we dig into the specifics of your translation of Adelwold's translation of, Ad- of Benedict's rule, um, yeah. we need to know something about the man behind the translation, who probably isn't familiar to most of our listeners. We've heard of Benedict, we know some of those old English guys like Bede, but who is Adelwold? Yeah, so Athelwold uh, was born and died in the 10th century in England. Um, he lived in mostly in the southwest, um, in south, I guess. Um, but he was an abbot and a bishop. He lived in uh, Winchester when he was bishop uh, until the end of his days. And uh, we, we tend to forget sometimes that uh, the seat of royal power in uh, his day was actually in Winchester, where he was, not in London. Um, we associate, you know, the UK's royalty with London so heavily. Um, so it's important to remember he was right there with the king. Um, and he started what's called the Benedictine Reform in uh, Anglo-Saxon circles. Uh, so this was a reorganization and a kind of shoring up of the monastic life in England in the 10th and somewhat in the 11th century. Um, like so many things, the conquest cut it short a little bit. Um, but uh, those monasteries are particularly important, A, because that arrangement that he set up went until the dissolution of the monasteries under King Henry VIII uh, in the 16th century, and those places that he set up were the places where all the um, old English literature that we have extant, at least for the most part, um, was copied out. So without those monasteries, we don't have the kinds of records of old English literature that we would, we have today. Excellent. Now, he was uh, he was Bishop of Winchester. Did he cease to be an abbot when he became bishop? Um, no, he was, at least for a time. I, this The record, as far as I can tell, is a little um, spotty when it gets into his later okay. years. But he actually became the abbot of old uh, the Old Minster in Winchester. Um, there were three monasteries, the Old Minster, New Minster, and Nunnaminster. <laughs> so um, very creative names. Um, yeah. But yeah, he became the the abbot of uh, the old minster that was his cathedral church okay. um, for a time at least. I'm not sure if he stayed that way until his death, but yeah, at least initially. Okay, so so when he's doing when he's doing this translating, it is uh, not just as someone who has been in a monastery and had previously led a monastery, but um, potentially as one who's actively doing it. Yeah, absolutely, yes. 
he is he seems to be first and foremost a shepherd uh, you know of sorts here right well could you say a little bit more about the benedictine reform it's it's uh the big names involved what its goals were what problems it was trying to correct yeah so the the three big names associated with the Benedictine reform in England are St. Ebelwald, our, our man of the hour, um, St. Dunstan, who was kind of his, his teacher and senior um, when he was, when Ebelwald was at Glastonbury Abbey, uh-huh. um, where he started his monastic career. Um, and as St. Oswald, um, who was, oh goodness, I'm thinking, yeah, Worcester uh, in York, he was bishop of for a time. Um, so these three guys were you know, at the van, in the vanguard of the Benedictine reform, but they wouldn't have gotten anything done without King Edgar, um, who <laughs> history knows as King Edgar the Pacific, which I love. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a good name if you're going to have a name. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so these four guys really are the ones who, you know, kind of orchestrate this whole thing. Uh, so what happened was uh, monastic life in earlier Anglo-Saxon England, so from the early... Um, let's see, like the early 7th century through Bede's day, uh, right in the early 8th century, you know, it's surprisingly um, rapid um, development of monastic life in England. Um, And things were were impressive uh, as far as regular life went, as far as learning went. Um, Some guys were actually even learning some Greek all of a sudden in England, um, which was kind of this backwater until then. but we still we we have a bit of a romanticized view of Bede's day, um, a because Bede was so amazing himself, but also because people like Abelwald kind of valorized this past. Because if you're going to do a reform, as we all know, you got to valorize something in the past and say right. we need to get back to that, right? So, right. so that was one of their touchstones historically. Um, and so yeah, but that's colored modern historiography too. And over the last couple of decades, we've started to investigate this period more. And we realize more and more that seventh um, and eighth century monastic life in England was much more spotty than than we had probably realized before. Um, so life not being quite so regular, um, the definition of a monk kind of being pretty gray, that kind of stuff, um, and a lot of secular um, management of monasteries. Right, and then the Vikings come, right, and all heck breaks loose for a good long while in England until Alfred kind of, you know, shores things up uh, in the late ninth century. Okay. So then, you know, a, a certain amount of peace is established in England after Alfred um, establishes the Dane law and keeps the Danes in check for a while. And in that few decades where, you know, we kind of have some peace, we have order and people are starting to learn again in an earnest way, all of a sudden this desire for the monastic life, which in that period of the church of course, monastic life was seen as the kind of pinnacle of the Christian life. Um, the, the, the aristocracy, the king, and the bishops all kind of want monastic life back um, in, in the country. And they look across the channel, and they see, uh, particularly in France and the Low Countries, there's this reform going on there, too, uh, in the monasteries, which is getting a few things going. One is everybody's following the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, because it's clear and it's concise and it's not nearly as punitive as like the rule of St. Columban is, <laughs> which is yeah. nice if you yeah. can get it, right? <laughs> um, but then they're also um, reorganizing how monasteries are headed and trying to um, get secular leadership out of, um, you know, just out of the, the organization at all, out of the hierarchy at all if they can, and increasing the liturgical life um, of the monasteries. 
so very long offices where people are in choir singing, um, and especially emphasizing intercessory prayer um, as kind of like the duty of the monk. So yeah, um, as, uh, sorry, Evelwald, Oswald, and Dunstan see this going on there. Um, Oswald's actually on the continent for a while. Evelwald sends one of, uh, one of his monks as an envoy um, to one of the monasteries on the continent to learn this way of doing the monastic life, and they bring it back. And starting the 950s, I mean, 960s is when it starts in earnest, um, and they start spreading it throughout the country. Uh, and yeah, within a few decades, it's, it's all over the kingdom. So that's the basic rundown. Is there any? I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe I'm I'm a little too uh, infected by uh, is it, is it Wormald's reading of Bede as uh, suspicious of Wilfred, but uh, mm. is is there any uh, any hint here that this this may be an extension of an instinct that you see in an earlier period of preferring um, a Roman or Italian form of 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 liturgy or order to ones that had arisen uh, perhaps with the Gallic church or with the Irish church? Oh, interesting. You know, I actually hadn't really thought about that aspect of this. Um, I mean, there, I would say, I mean, Alfred himself had gone to Rome, right? Like the, when um, the Wessex, how the house of Wessex, sorry, when the house of Wessex had kind of risen to prominence, especially in Alfred um, and his son and grandson, um, they were so tightly wed to Rome that I'm not, I'm not, I don't yeah. want to, because I'm not, I'm not a historian, right? So I'm a literary right. <laughs> critic first okay. and foremost. Yeah. So I want to say though that, you know, Rome is kind of a foregone, or everything else is a foregone conclusion at that point. Um, yeah. And so, and when they do look for, you know, models for this reform, they're actually looking to France and the low countries, which had themselves become much more, um, acclimated maybe to the Roman models. Um, so yeah, I would, I would guess that's not as live an issue anymore. Yeah. I, I just find it very interesting. Uh, you, you made the reference to the rule of Columban and how, yeah, yeah. how much more um, uh, strict and uh, hardcore ascetic it is yeah. Yeah. than the rule of Benedict. And yet so much of what the, you know the Anglo-Saxon Benedictine reformers are talking about why they need to institute Benedict is is to bring back the discipline. I, f I find it interesting that if if something like Columban was in place, um, the rule of Benedict would be maybe it would be more of a, a humane right. <laughs> <laughs> be... remediation. <laughs> yeah, it'd be the the B class of, uh, of the monasteries. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And well, I suppose actually the one thing that I kind of left out of that answer that uh, I guess now is kind of glaring in, in my face is that this is really modeled on Charlemagne's reform, uh, but really okay. uh, Louis the Pious's reform, yeah. right? Uh, the Carolingian Empire. Um, and so in that sense, I suppose it goes hand in hand with the kinds of showing up of other institutions, state institutions that were happening at the same time. And part of why uh, they went with the rule of St. Benedict uh, amongst, you know, Charlemagne himself, Louis the Pious, St. Benedict of Anyan, um, Smaragdus, St. Michiel, these kind of guys. Part of the reason that they went um, St. Benedict's route was that it was um, a more straightforward kind of rule, but also that it was more adaptable to more situations. Um, and so the, the punitive measures, uh, I, I mean, certainly they would have probably been 
disciplining themselves in much more egregious ways than we would imagine is acceptable, uh, even in this light fashion of monasticism. Um, but yeah, it was more the applicability and the ability to be flexible, I think, that was that made it so appealing to them. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, the standardization. Now, bringing, moving from history to the present day you note in your introduction mm. that you have developed a fondness for this relatively sh uh, obscure ecclesiast from over a millennium ago um how do you find yourself personally connecting to adelold i mean what do you find admirable or endearing or applicable about him <laughs> yeah uh no i mean as i read or as i wrote that line um i thought what are people going to think about this <laughs> Uh, oh, I love the it. Sentiment. And they're good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, no, I mean, you know, I, I suppose to some degree, any translator, you know, if they actually like what they're doing, I suppose. Um, right. You know, it develops a certain kind of intimacy, you know, with the person that they're translating. Um, and I certainly, you know, I spent a lot of hours doing this translation. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I just kind of got, you know, I, I felt at home, I guess, in this language after a while. Um, and so there was a certain, and I suppose, too, there's a bit of, um, I don't know, I don't know the word for this, but uh, exceptionalism, maybe, or something. But like the idea that very few people have spent this much time with this text and this, and this man, you know, um, for a millennium, um, there was something kind of special in that too, you know, that even if I found the guy reprehensible in a way, you know, there weren't that many people who had actually spent time with him like this, you know, in a very, very long time. Um, a handful of scholars, you know, that actually care about this text for real and have done sustained work on it. So, that, you know, there was a sense of like coming into a very select group, you know, in that sense too. But, right. but to get to him, him himself, I mean, I, it's, it's so, it's so rare that we have, any sense of an authorial figure in this period that we're talking about. Um, yeah. Practically all of the old English poetry that we study in all the classes. And if you actually read something like, um, you know, the word exchange is a translation of a bunch of old English poems that were put, was put up by Norton recently um, last few years ago. That's terrific. Um, you know, these kind of popularizations, you read those and, and we have no idea who wrote this stuff, you know, yeah. um, uh, the the one big name we have for you know four of these poems is Kinnewolf, and that's all we know. You know that's all we've got. <laughs> so I mean, like he, that's nice that we <laughs> he encoded his name and that's it. That's it. Yep. <laughs> I mean it's it's nice that we have a name, but it, does it does a name make any difference if you have no other association? I don't know. But Azelwald, you know we we have the book that he used to give blessings at mass, right? The benediction of Azelwald. We have his students' output and their comments about him as a teacher, and they're all fond, you know. Um, I mean, of course, that's you know kind of preaching to the choir kind of stuff. But um, then we have a life uh, of him, and we have his own words in several texts in his own language. At that, you know. Um, so I mean we have a window into this guy in a way that we don't um, for a lot of people that we study in the early medieval period or medieval period, period. And I think, you know, that in and of itself um, made me warm up to him because like I usually study very anonymous personages. Um, but then there are also actual things in the rule and in some of those other texts that did, uh, you know, kind of brought it from the abstract to something that was actually concrete as well. Um, so, for instance, in the prologue, I talk about this in the introduction uh, to the book, but in the prologue uh, to the Rule of St. Benedict, 
how the world gets a little fast and loose with his translation at times. And throughout the prologue, he tries to guide his reader to understand very explicitly, as opposed to implicitly like Benedict does, very explicitly um, that this whole thing is about leading us to Christ, you know? Um, And so he kind of just interjects now and that is, this is a pathway to Christ or that is Christ, you know, these kinds of little, just, you know, very small comments. Mm -hmm. But to me, they add up as he continues to do it, you know? And, uh, but that leads into the other big thing that kind of really uh, endeared him to me. And that is, um, he says in a text that we know as uh, King Edgar's establishment of monasteries, which is a terrible title, uh, but we, we find out in this text that seems to be written by S.C. Now the World, um, like why he actually did this translation. And yeah. he says that, well, if A, King Edgar told him to do it, uh, because King Edgar, Edgar as a layman, um, but who was in charge of the, you know, the, the country, but also the church in his domain, you know, um, I mean, obviously not in a jurisdictional kind of way, but, you know, he's, he's leading this church too. He wants to know what's in that thing, you know, and he wants... Um, to gain wisdom from the rule. And so, you know, he wants it translated so he can read it on his own. But then also, Ethelwald takes it as an opportunity to talk about how other laymen, um, still meaning like not priests who come to the monasteries, right, but laymen who come to the monasteries, they won't won't have had Latin before. And for a lot of them, probably, it's too late in life to start, right? Um, And he says, they, they need this thing. They need this thing um, because they need to be able to understand what they're what they're taking on, right, and the kind of life they're about to live. And it doesn't matter. He says that explicitly. It doesn't matter what language we use to come to God. It matters that we come to God. And for a 10th century abbot and bishop to say such a thing, uh, that's pretty radical. Yeah. And I don't know. I was I was taken away. Uh, sorry, blown away by that. I was very taken aback by that too. Um, and that's a beautiful sentiment to me. Um, and, and he backed it up by actually doing it, yeah. you know, um, in, a, in an age when that such a thing was unprecedented. There's not another translation of the Rule of St. Benedict into a vernacular language for hundreds of years. Yeah, I love, and I, I when I read that bit in your introduction, I've, I felt, I like this guy. Uh, because <laughs> that's, I, I have a, a, a lot of that same affection for this particular period. There's this this instinct, and I, I guess it's coming from Athelwold, because I, I, I sort of come into Athelwold backwards via Alfrich. Yeah. Sure. And, and his Catholic homilies and his heptateuch and his sometimes not fully willing, but at least his, 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 his willingness, even if he's not always convinced it's the wisest thing, but his willingness <laughs> to make more of these um, more of these texts that would have been in Latin uh, available mm-hmm. uh, to to those who can read uh, who, who can read English, and yeah. and I guess what I'm what I'm appreciating in Alfred that bringing more of this um, sort of orthodox traditional core of of teaching materials um, in the vernacular that that. That thing that I'm appreciating in Alfred, he's he's getting from his teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose just like this, yeah, Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, Avalwald himself, you know, he has. He, there's no precedent for translating the Rule of Saint Benedict in Anglo-Saxon England, mm-hmm. but there is 
precedent for translation, right? As anybody who's studied the period knows, there's there's the translations of Gregory the Great's dialogues and the um, uh, pastoral rule and translation of Boethius, and yeah, you know, so there's yeah, you know, there's these other kind of big texts, which again, like that in and of itself, yep. is crazy in the period. <laughs> um, but then there's the kind of a gap, it seems, you know, for a few decades where this this Alfredian project, whether Alfred was doing any of the actual translation or not, you know, um, which is, of course, up to, for debate now among scholars, but whether or not Alfred was involved, it was kind of an Alfredian circle yeah. um, project. And that seems to have kind of, you know, I, mean, I don't know, died out is the right word, but it just it, it goes by the wayside for a while. And when Everwald comes into power, it, it gets going in full force again. So he had precedent in, in, in that, you know, bringing Latin works into the vernacular in general. Um, so, you know, so we're always standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing. Um, but yeah, but there's a much more direct link between Everwald and Elfrich versus what Everwald was doing and the people who came a few decades before him. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, and, uh, the back of the back of the book explains this that you're uh, that you are yourself a Benedictine oblate. So so yeah. as one who is interested in the in the Benedictine way in a in a close personal way, but is mm. also not in the cloister. Um, right. That uh, I would I, I would imagine there must be some some connection that you have to this project. Um, that way, even though you haven't made that a centerpiece, which is you know, which is appropriate, you're doing you're doing uh, a proper scholarly translation, but that that bit of personal interest I found intriguing. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I uh, I try not to make um, too much of it, but it's certainly not something that I hide either. Yeah, um, my interests obviously come from somewhere, and and for me, you know, my interest in the Benedictine order um, over the last fifteen hundred years definitely stems from that. Although I will say there was some, some mutual influence when I first started doing my undergrad was when I was considering, you know, different kind of third order ideals. Um, and my interests in old English and um, kind of early medieval spirituality and everything actually did end up leading me to, yeah, the Benedictines seem like they're the place to be. <laughs> so there is a little bit of, you know, kind of back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of course. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, the uh, I mean, certainly that's what helped uh, that resonance when I when I was when I'm hearing uh, in this text Abelwold talking about trying to help King Edgar and laymen, you know, who don't have the kind of learning they need to access Latin and, and Latin culture. Um, yeah, I mean, I find myself in that you know in an analogous position, you know, a thousand years later or or so. Um, but a lot of you know the oblate culture is is in that in that mode. Um, and so I feel, I guess, also in a way that I'm, I'm trying to help further that project myself by trying to bring some of these old arcane things um, into people's uh, purview, I guess, you know, in life, um, because I do have all the training to do Latin and Old English and things. Um, and a lot of people don't have the time to do that in their other you know, occupations and, and vocations. So if I can help that community out at the same time, like, I think all the better. Excellent. Sort of a proper extension in the scholarly sphere of Benedictine hospitality. I hope. <laughs> yeah, welcome people into a book, even if not into a particular space. Yeah, yeah. Well, the you've talked some about the reasons uh, for for translating the rule of Benedict into Old English. 
um, had the had the general use of Latin in um, in the daily work of the Psalter had that had that decayed? Would they not have been expected to be learning and singing the Psalter anymore, or would it, or would they be singing it without understanding? Oh yeah, good. No, good question. Um, well, okay. So there's a few parts to that answer. Um, first, I think just like any time we're singing in a language that's not our mother tongue, we yeah, we probably don't understand sometimes, <laughs> no matter how learned we are. <laughs> um, and I've had you know priests and monks and nuns tell me that uh, <laughs> that uh, they don't always understand the words, but they get the spirit, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so no, I mean, certainly that was going on, I, I imagine, you know, for some people back then, um, just like any any period in the Latin tradition. Um, but no, more more to the point, though, in the historical context, um, the idea is, yeah, that like monasticism as an institution had decayed to the extent um, that there weren't really that many people um, even calling themselves monks, you know, and, and living a monastic life and, and proclaiming to live a monastic life. Um, but certainly very few living what is recognizably um, a monastic life, especially from like a modern perspective, looking back on um, the medieval world. And so, um, I mean, Adelwald, again, this is, you know, this is biased information, of course, but Adelwald tells us in that same document, King Edgar's Establishment of Monasteries, um, that really there was only one actual monastery left, and that was at Glastonbury, where he had studied. Um, And so what he means by that is not that there weren't women and men living together kind of collegiate life and, and living, you know, the rudiments of a, a religious life together. Um, but rather that like a rigorous observation of chastity and, com- you know, complete individual poverty um, and the full cycle of offices and all that was being performed you know, at, at only a Glastonbury, right? That's where it's happening. Um, and then Abingdon where he, he ends up being abbot for a while. So um, I think the idea is that if people in those places, Again, you know, the truth of the matter, we'll, we'll never perhaps really know. But I think his take on it, at least, is that, yeah, there might be something going on there. But, yeah, either they're not really understanding what they're chanting and all that all the time, um, or they're just lax in their responsibilities and they're, they're not doing it. Right? And that's what he convicts uh, the Winchester canons of doing, right? They're living a dissolute life, and they're not even fulfilling their liturgical obligations any longer. Um, and so that's why we need this reform. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, my guess is that lay uh, people who are coming into Abelwald's monasteries, they're trying to get as much Latin as they can to be able to chant it in the Psalms um, and the you know the canticles and the antiphons of the office. Um, but you know, are they ever going to get to where they fully understand it? You know, I mean, that's speculation, but my guess is probably not. You know, like understanding it real time. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's why stuff like this is necessary. But also we have to remember just the, the sheer um, fact of founding and refounding monasteries leads to a bunch of people coming in who've never had exposure to this stuff before, right? So even if the, the kind of old guard, I guess, is still around in some of these monasteries and they have some working knowledge of Latin, um, there's just people coming in all the time to these new establishments who've never really had that kind of education before. Um, so if nothing else, I guess you need these things as like a stopgap measure, right, to kind of get people on, you know, get people going while they learn the rudiments of Latin and everything. Uh, but gosh, if we had more information on how that actually worked out on the ground, how wonderful would that be? Yeah. Um, yeah. But at this point, it kind of remains piecemeal. So. Yeah. Every, every medievalist wish list. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. What did they actually do? The <laughs> big question. Well, we've talked about the language. He's making he's making things accessible in terms of language. But you also note a lot of times in this translation the places where Benedict has rewor or sorry where where Al uh, has has reworded Benedict or has <clears throat> supplemented Benedict uh, in order to make the rule accessible to those who were unlearned or uninformed in other kinds of ways, not just in language. So, what are some yeah, of your favorite yeah. illustrations of that? Yeah, so I think um, my absolute favorite, the one that kind of, because uh, you know, when I when I started this project, I really didn't know what was going to come of it, right? I was, I just kind of said, well, I'll translate, you know, the prologue and a couple of chapters and see if there's something that's actually different enough that warrants me doing this this as an actual book project. Yeah. Um, and the prologue vastly rewarded that effort because that's one of the places where he's really doing a lot of flourishes and a lot of explanations and, and changing some things. He never changes anything drastically, but yeah, enough that you're like, okay, this is a different thing. You know, he's transforming the text to some degree. And so one of them that was like my first, oh yeah, this is going to work out <laughs> kind of moment was um, uh, in the prologue where Benedict talks about girding your loins, right? Um, and, you know, and this is a scriptural, uh, scriptural illusion um, and uh, metaphor, and it's coming to Benedict himself from St. Gregory. So, you know, okay, uh, it's, it's got scriptural and patristic precedent, so it's a great thing to put in there. But Ethelwald must be sitting there in the 10th century translating this thing into his language and saying, what? No one's gonna know what girding your loins means. That's what the. I mean, I guess well they'll get the literal meaning, right? So like, how are they gonna, you know? So I thought we how, how are they robes. gonna know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, how are they going to know the subtleties of what girding your loins means, right? And so, yeah. so he goes and he goes to Gregory the Great and he sees like, what does Gregory the Great explain that as? Because you know, of course, as a good patristic, Gregory can't avoid saying, okay, now you might be wondering what that means. Let me tell you spiritually what that you know expression in, in scripture means. And so he takes that wholesale, um, which basically I forget the exact wording, but something like you know having a you know a chaste mind and you know a disciplined spirit or whatever it is, right? Right. Um, and and puts that in, but he jettisons the whole image of girding one's loins, right? He just says, don't, like, let's just take that out because no one's going to get it anyway. Um, and we'll just put in the straightforward thing, right? So he's like, he's de-allegorizing, I guess, you know, Benedict's rule. Um, so yeah, just I mean, and so it's little touches like that where you can see Adelwald as this kind of concerned shepherd trying to get across what is essential and necessary in the rule to his charges without, like, changing the meaning, you know, of, of the rule, uh, yep. essentially. Right. Yep. Um, so it's, it's lots of stuff like that, that was coming up in the early chapters that convinced me, yeah, this is actually of interest and, you know, could, you know, I mean, it's still an arcane interest for, for sure, but there's something there that rewards, you know, the attentive reader, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I appreciated the, the attention that you draw to each of those and how very mm, frequently he's not, he's not winging it. Right. He's, he's right. relying right. on, uh, and you trace this out, he's relying on uh, a uh, commentaries on the rule that have themselves um, 
explicated some of you know Benedict's more you know obscure or or, or spiritual manners of speaking, um, and, yeah. and he's sort yeah. of folding that up into the text. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, so that uh, it, it sort of reminds me of the, the 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 ways in which you know one you know Christians often who are raised in uh, a very uh, traditional you know, church context, you know, whichever, mm -hmm. whatever tradition yours is. Uh, but, but we, we aren't aware of the degrees to which we speak in our own language until we're trying to oh, explain yeah. something <laughs> to someone who's completely outside of it. And then you suddenly realize yeah. I, I'm going to have to come up with new ways. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. I, yeah, like mediating vocabularies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I loved seeing Athelwold try to find mediating vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. Well, and, and that's, I mean, uh, you know, like the first section of my introduction is called, um, if I'm remembering right, a translation of a translation with a question mark. Yeah, <laughs> because I realized that it's a weird thing to do, right? Um, you know, because I mean, every time I told someone that I was going to try this project, they were like, "Well, why would you? Why would you do that? It's a translation." But the thing is, um, I think I may have already alluded to this, but I'll give a little bit more attention to it. Like in the 10th century, translation just wasn't a thing. I think we're so used to translation now, right? We just like, obviously you translate everything into English, right? Well, no, that was a radical idea in the 10th century and, and novel, not just radical, but novel, you know, um, if they're different, but <laughs> when, um, so that, but there's, that means there's not a lot of precedent for how one goes about such a task. Right. And so when Elderwald's sitting down to do this, um, you know, he doesn't, especially in manuscript culture, like he doesn't have nice footnotes to do, and he doesn't have a word processor to lay everything out nice and neat, and he doesn't want to take up a bunch of room saying, now, this is what Benedict says, but here's what I think it means. You know, he doesn't do any of that. Yep. He just puts in his own thoughts. And he doesn't flag them. He doesn't show you that he's doing it. He just he just translates it. And Janet Bailey has a what I think is the best word for this because it's so close to what the real Saint Benedict is. But it's also over and over again a little bit different. She calls these things like the other old English translations um, transformations. Oh, yeah. And I think that really hits it, you know, because it's not a total redo, mm -hmm. but it's also not a translation in the way that we think of it. Because, yeah, he's putting in his own words, he's putting in Gregory's words, he's putting in especially Smaragdus of St. Michiel, who did this commentary referring to his words, and he does it all the time, and he never flags it for the reader. Um, and so, you know, 90 to 95% of the text probably is still just, you know, pretty literal translation of the Latin, um, but there's enough of it distributed evenly throughout that is not in the Latin, that it's... it's it's Applewold's version of the rule of St. Benedict. And I think that, that warrants its own attention, you know, especially given that he's not just, he's not just a scholar translating an, an, an older text. He is right. also himself an abbot who is immersed in this rule personally and living within a community yeah. that lives according with it. So, so to what degree, right. Is he speaking to us with the voice that he would have used? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a, that's exactly that part of it. Um, part of what was getting me so close to him was was seeing that part of him, like mm -hmm. not just yeah, exactly. I, I like how you put it. Not just the scholar, but the teacher and the pastor, right? The, the shepherd 
who's trying to help people. And, you know, you can say, well, you know, he's a domineering guy, whatever. There's a lot of historiography that says that, whatever, you know, that's not, um, I got no skin in that game myself, but he's trying to help the people who are under his charge, you know, um, to understand this rule that's essential to their lives. Like after the Bible, rule St. Benedict, you know, like that's what's forming their lives together. Um, and as you say, like he is, he's immersed in this community and he has been in various places, you know, his entire adult life. Um, and so he's got, you know, some insight and he's going to give it to people. And, um, and I actually think, um, I've got, this is, I guess, uh, a, a preview for what's to come. I'm hoping to start doing some work with Alfrich too. We'll see. It's going to take some time, but I want to, but part of why I want to work with Alfrich, um, and do some translation, but also did this with the other world is that I think like to get back to the Benedictine angle too, like I think a lot of times we forget that these guys were Benedictine abbots, you know, and Benedictine monks and bishops, you know, um, in Everwald's case. And I don't know. I, I don't think that often we, we sell these guys as this is, this was their role. You know, they were pastors and they were people who were trying to lead people to God um, cause I mean, of course in the Academy, that's an unpopular, um, perspective to take. And, you know, and, I, and there's good reasons for that too. Um, but at the same time, like in the church, we have like this massive tradition to draw on and, and it's just these gaping holes where we're just not paying attention, you know? Um, and we can, and we can get spiritual edification from that too. Um, and so, I mean, that's, to me, I'm always switching back and forth between that intellectual and spiritual and, and it's hard to tell where one starts and one ends. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm 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 fairly, Very messy. I'm fairly sure that that's something that that Avalwold and Bede would would be completely sympathetic with. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I hope. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about um, I like that the the transformation of the text, and there are also a few yeah. points in which uh, you note some of the some of his rhetorical flourishes, not just Alfred as a as a, a translator or an explainer of Benedict, a sort of rolling commentator, but also mm-hmm. the the way that he'll he'll use language in a flourishing poetic kinds of ways. That yeah, for you know, for me, my introduction to Old English is heroic verse, and so I'm always looking for right. poetic compounds and alliteration and mm-hmm. things of that nature. Um, and there were some bits where the way that you translated something led me to think, Athelwold seems to be indulging in some tropes of heroic <laughs> verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> he was only human too. Okay. <laughs> so uh, are there it. particular places where um, where where my instinct was was correct on that one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was, um, oh gosh, I'm not going to find, I actually got the thing right in front of me to see if I could find it quick, but um, there is, oh yeah, hey, look, I did find it. Um, on page 33 of the book, there's um, a note where he has Leoflauchs, an mm. old English compound um, that seems to be like light through faith or something. There's people who take it different ways and try to amend it because it's original, right? Um, if, if, if it's actually a word and if the scribe got it right, this is out of old, apparently making up a word, Yay. which as you rightly say, yeah, <laughs> as you rightly say, this is one thing that old English poets love to do. It's a compounding language like modern German, and they want to make new words out of old words. Um, 
And so I leave it. You know, I, I'm I ca- I'm kind of a hands-off guy when it comes to editing and translating. Like, what's there is there, and I am okay with that um, in the face of the text. And so, yeah, so there's one, you know, glaring uh, example of that right there, which I love. Um, but I, I talk about in the introduction, too, that uh, the ending to the prologue to the rule um, lasts like two or three paragraphs, I think, in the modern edition. Um, he He's not changing the sense really anywhere. He's not doing this thing where, like he imports stuff or leaves stuff out. He's not doing that. But he does like change the syntax and uses doublets where he feels like he can and all this kind of stuff, like these little massagings of, of the text. But they're so, um, you know, usually like every few sentences you see him. And here he's doing it like constantly. And it gets to a point where he's basically engaging in what uh, Anglo-Saxon is called rhythmic prose, right, which is what, Alfred, what a lot of Alfred's stuff is in, mm-hmm. where it's, it's almost like the classical old English meter, but, but not quite. You know, it's not as, nearly as regular. But he's doing these kind of four-beat lines, and there's a lot of alliteration and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But he's doing, he's doing puns, he's doing alliteration, um, and he's, it just seems to be kind of whipping himself up into a rhetorical fervor at the end of the rule. Yeah. And it's gorgeous to me, you know, like, again, if you're kind of used to how old English sounds, you know, and you, you know, you, you have that in your ear, um, when you read that, it's like, oh man, yeah, he is, he's selling it, you know? Um, yeah. and he's, he, and he's getting as far away from a kind of, you know, prosaic crib as you can get while still, you know, actually sticking with Benedict's basic sense all the way through. Um, but it's a beautiful thing. And I, I I've, totally shameless plug um i actually liked that part so much that on my blog i read it out um and along with the translation too right afterward but i read it out because to me old english it's got to be heard you know um i mean it's uh i mean that's what actually started me down this path i was interested in the sight of it and then i took a class in old english at eob madison during my undergrad my second year and the professor started with cadmont's hymn in old english just reciting that you know uh the top of her head and I was like, all right, this is it. <laughs> like, I guess this is what I'm doing with my life now. Strap <laughs> <You know>? in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So to me, like, yeah, it does, it does matter. Uh, so anyone who actually cares about such sonic qualities of language, uh, it's on there, you know, in case anybody wants to hear it. Um, but yeah, that, that is probably the, you know, the, the most um, polished example of that. But yeah, he does it all throughout. There's little moments where he alliterates, and he kind of gives doublets that sound good together, and um, and he's got a nice rhythm. I mean, it's, if you are used to Old English prose, I think he's got a kind of a you know a studied Old English prose, <laughs> I guess I would say. Yeah. To use a ridiculous professorism. Yeah. Well, it's, it's especially you know I don't, I don't know if there's anyone among our listeners who's had some introductions to Old English. Um, mm-hmm. If your introductions immediately lateraled into poetry. Um, mm. one, I'm, I'm, I'm a little sorry because it probably made it all feel much, <laughs> much, much less clear, uh, yeah. than, than, <laughs> than it could have been, um, in, you know, in contrast to translating, you know, something like Beowulf, um, a homily by Alfredge or Wolfstan yeah. is just, it's just so limpid. Um, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, pleasant to read but they also have those moments like uh, like you're saying Athelwold does at the end of the prologue where you can you can kind of see this is the part in the sermon where the volume raises and the voice picks yeah. up and yeah. the preacher has become the shop 
Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's when you can see, like, you know, these guys. Um, you know, you someone might say, like, this is the extent of learning back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, well, you know, yeah, it was a, eh? but also they they loved the word and they especially yeah. loved the spoken word. Yeah. And so for them, part of what this whole thing was was about it. It was about you know declaimed rhetoric, right? Like you got to get up there and speak in front of people. And it's gotta, it's gotta sell it, you know. It's gotta sound good, um, and that's not essential to the message, but it's, it seems to be essential to human life, you know, in yep. some way. And and that's important to them. Language matters, and yeah, and absolutely. Um, any but any sermon that you read that's worth its salt, you know, there's there, you can see those pockets, um, and you can see where they fail sometimes too, you know. <laughs> but but there's those pockets where you can tell like they're trying, you know, to mm-hmm. make this thing really ring out and, and all that. It's great. Uh, one of uh, one of the things that I found particularly interesting, just to sort of shift the base, um, mm-hmm. is that a number of his editions, especially uh, towards the, the beginning of the rule, but it's it's something that cropped out throughout, is now Saint Benedict has a number of places where he says it doesn't matter the social distinctions uh, of who mm. the monks were before they entered the community. But Avalwold, yeah. uh, in in a number of places, has has stepped in to make it doubly explicit that being nobly born, in particular, mm-hmm. um, being nobly born, does does not, must not, should not translate into rank or favor within the monastic community, but only yeah. only piety and skill. Yeah. Yeah. But he was in Winchester, right. <laughs> operating under the direct patronage and thumb, potentially, yeah. of yeah. of the king. Uh, so he right. has aristocratic and royal support. Um, yeah. I mean, can you help us think through that tension? What is he trying to accomplish by emphasizing this in the rule, but at the same time, very clearly hand in glove with kings? Yeah. Yeah, no, and and I mean, and basically all we know about Ethelwold's like family and upbringing um, is what's told to us um, in Wolfstan of well, Wolfstan Cantor or Wolfstan of Winchester, whichever you prefer. Um, his <laughs> yep. life of Ethelwold, which again, you know, we don't know much about him beyond that. Too. Um, although he wrote some beautiful Latin, so that's good. Um, but he he says, you know, that he was from a Winchester family um, that was that was noble. Um, so that's also kind of a trope in medieval saints' lives. Mm-hmm. So who knows about you know the veracity of that? Because we can't confirm it by anything else, unfortunately. Um, but certainly he. But we do have historical verification that Ethelwold was at Ethelstan, King Ethelstan's court, as he was kind of growing into adulthood. So you know, being at the king's court, you know, it, it's pretty easy to to say, yeah, Ethelstan's probably right that he was actually nobly born. Um, so yeah, I mean, not only does he have the support of the king and various noblemen, um, he's also presumably nobly born himself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he so he does have a life of privilege, uh, certainly. Um, and I mean, one thing that's interesting to me then is you know taking on this life of asceticism and and rigor of discipline and all of this um, when when you have that, 
that life of privilege um, is interesting to me. Now, of course, you know, he's still got the king's patronage and everything. So, I mean, he's not going to starve, right? And that's like, I'm not going you know, to have any illusions about that. Um, but we also like, let's keep in mind that these, these aren't, you know, like the 14th and 15th century monasteries in England that have been around for centuries upon centuries and they have lots of land and lots of incomes. Um, and again, like even the historiography about that, like, you know, that leads to decay and corruption and all that in the late, uh, late medieval period, that's changing now. Um, you know, it's, it's different, you know, corrupt is a definite value judgment. Um, but you got to remember, now well today, like these are just starting out. So like, no one even knows if it's going to work. You know, like he's devoting his life to this, and he has no idea if this is going to last past when he dies. You know, um, so it was a risk. It was a risk. Um, but anyway, more to the point. Um, so yeah, he, you know, reform movements in general kind of need patronage um, of the of the powerful and the wealthy, uh, at least at least some at times. You know, and so this this is a paradox that you know, runs through all, all kinds of movements. But it seems like once Avalwald has made this leap, you know, and he's in it, um, he, he knows how to leverage power uh, from the people that he needs it from. Uh, he knows how to get his way um, and get money and land for all these establishments. Um, but he also seems to be genuinely concerned about that kind of proper order in the monastery. And I think... Um, especially going from other documents, especially that King Edgar's uh, establishment of monasteries that I keep talking about and referring to, there's, you know, kind of hints and shades in these other other texts as well that there was a real concern that that needs to be in place within the enclosure of the monastery, you know, within the cloister. Um, you know, they weren't trying to make any kind of revolution in society by saying, like, no, there shouldn't be any hierarchy. Like, they were rigidly hierarchical. Yeah. Just within the cloister, it's a different kind of hierarchy, right? Yes. Um, and so they were certainly not questioning the hierarchy of, you know, of the state and the, you know, the, the nobility and all that. Um, although they were pushing back against it in the kinds of reforms they were doing, because in order to get the, excuse me, the land and the, the income and the freedom to do the kinds of uh, monastic regimen that they wanted to do in these monasteries, they actually had to take a, land, a lot of land away from a lot of nobles. Um, which causes a, a bad reaction after King Edgar dies and all this. Um, but the, you know, the kind of, once again, we kind of go in this circle. Uh, yeah, he's taking away stuff from the, the aristocrats. Aristocrats don't have the same kind of um, power over the monasteries they used to have. But the only way to achieve that is basically to put it all under the uh, patronage of the king. Um, so now you've got this quid, quo, quid, pro, excuse me, quid pro quo going between the king and all these monasteries, so, you know, of course there's room for problems to creep in with that power relationship, too. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, what do you do? And um, so the monasteries, we find out in the Regularis Concordia um, that was promulgated somewhere around the nine, around 970, um, which was this uh, document, the first customary in England, actually, which says, here's what we actually do all day in the monasteries. <laughs> uh, because, rule, you know, the rule is good, but, you know, it doesn't give us a lot of details about what you actually are supposed to do on a day-to-day level. Um, so this is, the, you know, this, this big document that comes out to do that. And it, one of the unique uh, elements in that, uh, in the English customary, is um, prayers for the royal house, mm-hmm. and a lot of them, right? So, you know... Uh, I, I, I have no reason to doubt that King Edgar thought that was probably a pretty good return on his investment. You know, um, I don't, you know, some people can't be cynical about the medieval, um, royalty. Um, but I, I don't, 
see any reason why we should think the King Eight or didn't think that was actually a valuable thing. Um, but was there more to you know what the Everwolves and the monsters would have to give back to him because of all of his support? I don't you know. I don't know. It's very hard to say. Um, but to get back to the internal life of the monasteries, it it does seem as though um, Everwolves is very aware that a lot of lay people, um, people who aren't terribly uh, well-off or educated are going to be coming into his monasteries too. And it seems like he wants to provide, you know, some kind of security for them, but they're not going to basically just be turned into servants for everybody else. Um, And this extends in different ways. Um, I mean, part of why I feel like that is, you know, present in the text is also there's another chapter where he's talking about like priests coming into the monastery and other people coming into the monastery. And he makes special mention of canons coming into the monastery, which is not in the rule of St. Benedict at all. Mm-hmm. in the Latin. Um, this is totally his imposition into the text, but it matters because in 964, he had actually expelled all the canons from the, the monasteries in Winchester and replaced them with his own monks, which was a pretty serious move, and he needed backing from the king and armed backing from the king to do this, um, and people were not happy about it. But there's also a sense there that, you know, and, and we have actual historical record that some of the canons did come and live in, the, in these monasteries later, right? Like years later, they came back and, and joined the communities. So there's a sense where, that he wants to make it clear, like, hey, everybody's welcome. If you're going to live this life, you're here, and you're going to live this life. That's fine. It doesn't matter what you were before, you know? Um, so in various ways, you know, he, he addresses that issue. So I think he was trying to live that ideal and, and institute it, but again what we wish we had was what was it actually like on an everyday level and, and not there. So, well, you know, if wishes were fishes, um, That's right. That's right. yeah, I, I regularly tell my students, um, when I'm sort of teaching, teaching on anything from this period in history, uh, just the amounts of, uh, the, the 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 sums of of books that are described or that show up in library catalogs or that are referenced, and mm-hmm. and we don't have that and we don't have that and yep. we don't have that <laughs> right. and we don't have that <laughs> and it's 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 humbling yeah yeah humbling and depressing depressing yeah <laughs> <That's right. laughs> ah well yeah. Yeah, but but it also keeps us going, right? Because yep. you know you fill in the picture as much as you can, yep. right? And we have to invest that much more in what we do have left. That's that's the upside of it. Yep. I mean, if we're, <laughs> that's if, what I keep telling myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we're unlikely to find more, then what we need to do is leverage what we have. And yeah. Yep. 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 So, on Christian humanist profiles, we try to be hospitable too, and mm-hmm. we do that by letting our guests have the last word. So as we're rounding out this conversation, which um, I know I've enjoyed, and I, I hope you, dear listeners, will enjoy it as well. Oh, and by the way, dear mm-hmm. listeners, that uh, that reading of the the end of Adelwold's prologue uh, that Dr. Ryaf mentioned earlier, we will be linking in our show notes, so you can you can go hear that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what would you What would you like us to be thinking about uh, as we round out this conversation about Adelwold, the rule, uh, or whatever? Yeah, I guess um, a, a brief thing that we kind of already touched on would be simply um, that, that we can access these old texts um, and these old ideas 
and still find value in them and still find intellectual and spiritual nourishment in them, um, that they can matter still. Um, if for no other reason, then I've found that, I guess, you know, yeah. um, and, and other people that I know. Um, and, and, you know, those of us who do kind of toil away with these things and try to bring them to the light of the day, um, I don't know. It's fun for me to see other people go, oh, yeah, right. That makes sense. I can, I can find value in that. Um, it's, it's a delight for me to see that, that happen. Um, I guess the other big thing that I think I, do, I wasn't bold enough um, yet to be able to do when I was writing the introduction to the book was to really just claim some ground and say, when we're learning about Old English literature, because, I mean, again, as a literary critic, like, that's my, my primary concern, um, you know, professionally. Like, when we're learning about Old English literature, so often we, we don't give students a lot to go on as far as the intellectual and religious cultural background of the Anglo-Saxons. We can, you know, we, we give them some bead. Um, we might do a little bit of the Chronicle, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, right, the history book, you know, of, of sorts from back then. And, you know, and that's good. I mean, you know, we can't spend a ton of time doing context. I, I know that. Um, and yet, I feel like, especially, I, I think both of our populations, when, when you have um, people who are raised in a very secular household or atheists or just have no um, connection to the Christian world at all, that population, but also the population of students. Like I'm here at Marquette, and I've got a lot of uh, Catholic students. Certainly not all, but you know, it's a disproportionate population. Mm-hmm. Um, both are are pretty. They have a diff- they have a difficult time understanding what early medieval Christianity might have been like. Yeah. You know, yeah. on the one hand, because they don't anything about Christianity, so I don't know this. Can I even take this class? Um, but on the other hand, it's well, I I know this. I go to mass. I hear all this stuff. You know, and it's like. Yeah, <laughs> but being a 21st century Catholic in the United States of America or, you know, a 21st century Lutheran in the United States, you know, of whatever stripe, this is not the same as being a Christian in 10th century England, right? There, there are certain, certain commonalities, right, that always cohere um, across the centuries of the church. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of differences, too. And um, so both groups can kind of miss things for different reasons. Um, that's what I find teaching this material over and over again. Uh, but also just like on the outside of the academy, um, when I bring this stuff to other groups, same kind of thing um, happens. And so I think, again, if I had been a little bolder when I wrote this introduction, I would have really wrote, written this into the introduction, and that is that this can, this text and the introduction to it that I'm doing there and the um, supplementary text that I do in the appendices, they can serve as a as a kind of introductory book uh, source for the religious and intellectual culture of Anglo-Saxon England in a way um, that I think we we just don't have a lot of in uh, Anglo-Saxon studies. And yeah. I actually did this last fall. I taught. I was thankfully I was given the chance to do a genre course, and I did Old English poetry. And we actually, like, radically enough, we just read parts of the Rule of St. Benedict as Ethelwell translated them. We read some other, you know, like, ancillary documents uh, about the Reform Movement. We read King Edgar's Establishment of Monasteries cool. as a way of trying to get into these people's headspaces a little bit, you know. And then when we went into things like Exodus or Vainglory, like, you know, when does that poem get any press, you know? Right. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> all these poems, all of a sudden they had this vocabulary, you know, for yeah. like institutional reality that, that these poems were made in. But they could also talk about he, the value of humility and the ways that obedience works out in society, you know, and that I was blown away. Like I had never heard students bring these things up reading these poems before. Yeah. Um, so that was great. But then we went, when we got to the more traditional poems that are read, like The Wanderer and The Seafarer, um, which if your listeners haven't read these poems, they're spectacular. Go read them. Um, they, they were able to see the really deeply resonant early medieval Christian kinds of things going on in those poems that usually are, you know, kind of intentionally alighted in traditional presentations of them in the academy. And then, you know, then we got to Beowulf and give me a break, right? It was just yeah. a whole different ballgame reading Beowulf in this context. Oh, so yeah. from the, from the collegiate perspective, you know, and, and you know, higher learning, I, I highly recommend like try, try using it. You know, if you, if you actually are someone who can use this kind of material in your classroom, but also even just outside the academy, like if you just have an interest in early Christianity medieval Christianity, um, or just, you know, arcane weird stuff that some guy did, (laughs) this can also be a really good introduction to old English poetry, um, and medieval English poetry in general. Um, so I, I, that's how I'd love people to actually use it as a practical tool to understand something else that I love, which is old English poetry. Um, that's ultimately the reason that the thing got done. So yeah, that's my last word. Excellent. Good last word. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, dear listeners, that's all the time that we've got for our conversation today. And I want to thank you, Dr. Raya, for being uh, willing to come on Christian Humanist Profiles and talk to us about your book. Absolutely. It's a delight. Thank you very much. Well, listeners, we've been having a conversation about the Old English Rule of St. Benedict by St. Adelwold of Winchester, uh, translated by Jacob Ryoff. Uh This book is available now from the liturgical press Uh, there will be a link straight to that book in the show notes on our blog when they publish Uh, our blog is christianhumanist.org christian humanist profiles is a program on the christian humanist radio network our press liaison is kristen philippic our audio editor is Britt stack i'm david grubbs your host this week wishing you a grand week Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.